So we're, we're actually going to be looking at um, uh, the story of Bartimaeus interacting with Jesus. So that's actually on your program in the reading if you want to refer to that. Um, the story is in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Gospel of Mark is, may well have been the first of the four Gospels that was available and written, maybe three or four decades after the events that they speak of. Um, you can uh, read the Gospel of Mark in about an hour, um, or you can listen to it, you know, read a little more slowly in about 84 minutes. So it's a very manageable piece. It's not like reading War and Peace or something like that. Um, the last half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 11 through 16, are taken up with the final trip of Jesus with his disciples to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, his home place, uh, where Jesus was uh, crucified. And it shows Jesus being ostracized um, by all the important people and groups successively in his life. So his religious elders, his family, his mother and his brothers in particular, his supporters, his fans, the people in the crowds, his disciples, like his inner city homeboys there, his uh, Roman officials who are in charge in, in Israel at the time. He experiences being rejected by all of them. Um, you know, is, is the TV show Survivor still around? Um, so, you know, on Survivor, where they vote you off of the island, um, it was an actual practice in ancient Greece. Um, so an unpopular citizen could be banished for like 10 years by a public vote. So they would just call for this vote. And you would vote by writing the person's name on a shell. And that shell was called ostracon. And that's where ostracize comes from. So you didn't want to get ostraconed if you were in, Greek, in, uh, in ancient Greece. It's a, the word ostracize comes from that. It's a horrible experience. They say being ostracized, I was talking to a psychologist about this recently, he said um, being ostracized is a bigger psychological blow to the human being than losing a very important loved one that people recover more quickly and easily from that kind of a loss than they do from the experience of being ostracized. So if you've ever been ostracized, this story in, in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, is, is really written with you in mind. Uh, Jesus has been there. Jesus has done that. Jesus gets it. The first half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 10, are about Jesus' rise in popularity. As, a, as like a holy man. So I, I don't know if you've seen that. This is, it's really great to watch. Uh, it's, I think it's a PBS special about a Hindu holy woman whose like um, informal name is just Amma, which means mother. She's sometimes called the, the hugging saint. Anyone uh, tuning into that? And, and people line up literally for hours to get, I think it's like 30, 30 seconds or maybe a minute with Amma. And you might say something, she might say something to you, but the, the payoff is the, is the hug. And people come away just like feeling like they're changed. And this was such a significant event. Well, Jesus was like every culture has its holy men, holy women. Jesus was a holy man in his culture. He'd kind of achieved that status by how he had handled himself. So by chapter 10, I mean, it's all about, there's like, a series of different people or groups of people who are approaching Jesus in chapter 10. 
So it's all about the approach. And, and different people are approaching him in different ways and they're having different interactions with him, but they're all very significant interaction because he's a holy man. Like uh, Mark 10 starts off saying the crowds gathered to him. And then it says the Pharisees approached him and tested him with questions. And then it says they, some unspecified adults, maybe parents, brought small children to him uh, that he might bless them. And then it says someone who turns out to be a wealthy young man ran up to him and has a theological question for him. And then James and John, two of his inner circle disciples, it says approached him and they have a special request for special favors. And then finally we have Bartimaeus. But this is the last of the approaching people before the big shift into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. So it's positioned in a very like significant uh, place in the, in the story. And it, chapter 10 is so important because when you think about anyone hearing the Gospel of Mark, you're hearing it read in church, you're reading it on your own. I mean, that is your concern if you're interacting with the Gospel of Mark. It's like, how do I approach Jesus? Um, what can he handle? How would he respond if I approach him? What does it mean to interact with him? And so this is like playing itself out in uh, Mark chapter 10. And then the final one is the approach of the blind beggar. Let, let me just read it to you. I'll, I'll be reading it in the... Um, NRSV, New Revised Standards, pretty similar to that. I think that's the easy, easy reader version there. Then they came to Jericho. Very important because Jericho is probably the oldest city known at that time in, in the world. It went back thousands of years. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a loud, large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. He shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I like the way Avery kind of like sold it and, and, and spoke it out loud there like he was doing. So uh, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. So at one point they're shushing him, you know, and then well, they're like escorting him to see the holy man. That's like a, Jesus was kind of subtly dissing them there. Um, throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet, sprang to his feet and came to Jesus. He approached Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So, every detail of this approach by Bartimaeus shouts chutzpah. You know, that chutzpah is just like one of the best words you could ever say. It's like a... It's an experience. Could we just all together say chutzpah? Chutzpah. Yeah, it's chutzpah. It's like there's stuff going on in your head when you're saying chutzpah. It's, 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 a, it's a riot. It's a sensory riot to say that word. When, when it says, for example, that 
the man began to shout, it implies that he was, he was actually yelling for a while. Uh, many, it says, told him to shut up. And the, the Greek is, is really strong. It's like, shut up. And what does he do? He, like, he, he shouts out all the more. So, you know, you got to have to imagine the scene. Like it was common when there was a, a, a dignitary, a holy person coming into a town or leaving the town for a large crowd to assemble outside the town or to escort the person as they're leaving the town. It was, it was a big scene. And there's Bartimaeus. He's sitting by the side of the road. He's a, he's a beggar. He can't really see what's going on, but he knows something is happening. And so he starts to shout and, and he's being shushed. And then Jesus stops and everyone has eyes on Jesus. He's the holy man. And he says, well, call him. And Bartimaeus springs up. He throws his cloak aside and he came to Jesus. All of it was triggered by his chutzpah. Well, what is chutzpah? Chutzpah is the willingness to assert yourself. It's, it's the willingness to advocate for yourself, to ask or insist, to insert yourself, especially against social pressure to be quiet or to remain invisible. So, you know, teenagers are super tuned into social cues and, you know, there's always that parent, you know, who's like got chutzpah and speaks up in some social situation and it's just like the teenage kid is just dying. Like, you're, please don't draw attention to yourself. I, you know, I, he's not my father, you know, whatever's going on. There's always this kind of social pressure to be quiet or remain invisible that requires chutzpah. Chutzpah implies a strong self of a sense of self. Again, asserted against social convention or expectation. It's, it's like an act of uncool chutzpah. The person with chutzpah is exercising what the psychologists would call agency. Agency in this psychological sense is the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. Agency, super important to being human. So any act of oppression, religious, political, legal, social, is an effort by the powerful to limit a person or a group's agency, their ability to act independently and make their own free choices. So my, my late wife, Nancy, is in a period where she's... Um, in a struggle with our oldest um, daughter, who's a teenager at this time, over some of the choices and decisions our daughter was making at the time. It was nothing, looking back, it was nothing like big deal. It was just, they were different choices and different decisions than Nancy preferred. And Nancy was super perplexed and she was troubled and she was feeling like responsible. You know, how parents feel responsible. It's a, it's a heck of a thing being in a parent. You're like totally responsible for this completely vulnerable creature. But then they grow up and they gain more autonomy. But you still have that feeling of like, I'm responsible for everything that happens to them. And boy, that can put you in a, in a real funk when your kids become young adults or teenagers. And they're doing things, you're making choices that, oh, boy, that, that's not what I pictured. And so Nancy in this state takes a nap. It was a Sunday afternoon. 
And when she woke up from the nap, I mean, I knew she was in a funk when she took the nap. When she woke up from the nap, she was visibly lighter. She was just like glowing. She was relaxed. And I'm like, well, that was a good nap. (laughs) And she said, I had the most wonderful dream. Your mother came to me in the dream. My mother, Blanche Wilson, had died like several years, like well over 10 years earlier. And just to set the scene, Blanche Wilson um, in Nancy's life was the gentle, kind, nurturing mother she never had, you know, who gave her all sorts of space and didn't give her unsolicited advice and wasn't bossy. And so Nancy had a real soft spot for my mother. And, and, and Blanche, who would normally never give any unsolicited advice to someone in the dream, said very gently to Nancy, tell Maya she has a choice. And, you know, everything depends on context. And in the context of the dream, the tone of the voice, the interaction, Nancy experienced that as like a, a corrective that just took a weight off her shoulders. It was like, don't question Maya's choices. Don't pressure her to make the choices that you want her to make. Affirm her agency. And, and it was a real turning point in Nancy's relationship with that daughter. So Jesus here is doing the same thing. He's affirming the agency of Bartimaeus. Like when he says, what do you want me to do for you? When Bartimaeus finally comes to him, at first that seems really odd, doesn't it? Like he's a beggar, he's blind, Jesus is a healer. You're picturing, you know, Bartimaeus saying, dude, I'm blind, you're a healer, take a guess, you know. Uh, but, but we miss something here because there's a Middle Eastern scholar named Ken Bailey, and he says, in traditional Middle Eastern cultures, and he's lived in that area for his entire life, he said that in traditional um, Middle Eastern cultures shaped by, mainly by Judaism and by Islam, beggars had like a respected role in the community, in the village, for example, because Torah stipulated uh, the obligation of mitzvah, of righteous deeds of charity. Everyone had an obligation to be right with God, to do acts of charity for, for different people. Only, um, so the, the beggar had like a respected place in the community because the beggar was your opportunity to do mitzvah. And so when someone would, would give the beggar a coin, whether it's large or small, he would spring to his feet and he would pronounce these blessings, public blessings over the person. And it was like a win-win situation. And so um, the beggar had like certain, a certain kind of position that was recognized in the society. And only people with like verifiable handicaps could fulfill this beggar role. And certainly being blind was one of those verifiable handicaps. It's how it worked. So, you know, Jesus understandably didn't assume that he knew what Bartimaeus wanted. Um, maybe, he, maybe he was doing just fine in his place within the community. Um, and so he asked him. He, he was sincerely affirming his agency. And you notice that after the healing, what does Jesus say? He says, go, your faith has healed you. So he, he even ascribes agency to Bartimaeus for his own healing. 
quite remarkable. And then despite the fact that Jesus says go, so he heals Bartimaeus and then he says go, which is like he's sending him on his way. He did this several times after healing someone. He would say go back to your community, go back to your family, go, you know, live your life, go, you know, live your life. Bartimaeus doesn't go. Instead, it says he stayed with Jesus and he became a follower. Now, that's extra significant because most of the time to become a follower of Jesus, it was because Jesus summoned you. He's a rabbi. It's like to be a disciple, it's like to be in his rabbinic school. And so you need to gain admission. So you, you get summoned by a rabbi to, to follow him. Bartimaeus doesn't fit the pattern. Bartimaeus wanted to follow Jesus and he just did. He was without the invitation, in fact, contra the, the command of Jesus to go and live your life. So from start to finish, this guy is exercising his agency. And he's doing it despite the social efforts to limit or mute or restrain his agency. So here's how I see this applying to many of our stories and situations. So um, maybe just start with the obvious. You know, many of you I, I know have undergone like epic struggles with God. Like spiritual crisis, epic struggles of identity. Being told things about yourself that you were told you ought to be ashamed of, for example. And maybe you even bought it. But then over time, it didn't really ring true. And that was a struggle. How did you get out of that, like, dead-end hellhole you found yourself in? Well, eventually, you exercised your agency to say, I'm sorry, this is who I am. And when you did that at the time or in a certain context, it didn't feel pretty. It didn't feel like noble. It didn't feel like a righteous act, a mitzvah. You were exercising your agency against pressure not to. And some of this pressure you internalized into your own head. So this was like an intense psychological and spiritual struggle for you. Um, within your religious context, you may have been made to feel that this act of agency was actually offensive, was like harmful to the community. It was a crude and brazen act of selfishness, you know, disrupting um, the peace of your family or your community. So there's that obvious application here. And of course, this applies to, to many of us who aren't just asserting our sexuality or non-conforming gender identity, but it implies to many of us with other questions of identity or direction that needed to be asserted in face of opposition, requiring chutzpah. I mean, this is what part of what it is to be in a, a minority in a majority culture is that you're constantly needing to make a space for yourself within the majority. It's this constant demand for what feels like chutzpah. So, you know, it might be taking a path that differs from family expectations. Well, that story that uh, Fanette um, Pierce told, uh, was it, would have been two or three Sundays ago, of like being adopted and she's Native American and her parents are, are um, 
you know, a, a Methodist ministers. And at that time, it was thought the best thing to do was just to deny the Native American culture. It's all completely contrary to Christianity. And so, you know, all of the, her cultural identity was like stripped away from her. And then over time, she's like, no, no, this isn't right. And it took a real like sustained period of chutzpah for her to like integrate her Jesus faith with her native identity and, and, and listen to that story. That was a great one a couple of weeks back. Um, so, sometimes it's something as simple as coming to a church like this that requires like an act of chutzpah or, or like uh, assertion of yourself or your identity or, or it's like you're expected to be the fourth in a long line of doctors and you come to college and you're really turned on by actuarial science and you, know, you, you say dad you know dr dad I'm, i want to be an actuarial and he's like gag me with a spoon we are doctors in this family um, often in the moment that feels like you're doing something wrong like you're disappointing someone just as the crowd was trying to tell Bartimaeus, shut up. That's not cool. Be quiet. It wasn't about his begging. It was about his chutzpah in that moment. But here's the thing. In the middle of that external pressure on you, it could be that Jesus is stopping and he's like calling you. And when you spring up to come to him, you find that he interacts with you in a way that affirms your agency rather than asserts his. Like it's, the, the idea is communion with God. It's like interaction with God. It's like one self interacting with another self. Both of them with dignity and able to actually affect each other. I mean, in the Hebrew Bible, God is like a character. And sometimes, you know, Moses and Abraham and another come up to God and they say, hey, I don't like what you're doing, you're wrong. And they, they convince God to do something else. Or God even like changes his mind at times interacting with people in the Hebrew scriptures. It's clear that God, the God of the Bible, is honoring human agency and incorporating human agency into the unfolding of his divine and mysterious plan. And that's why he's like, awesome, God, not just like, here's what to do. He actually can strengthen your sense of yourself rather than imposing something on you that just isn't you. So he's, God is someone who can invite and delight in your chutzpah. So, a little personal testimony time. Um, uh, I've, been in, <laughs> I've been in therapy for a little while, and I've been working on some of the disruptions I experienced uh, later in my pastoral career as a result of changing my views on certain important questions. So, here's the thing. Um, when you think Jesus is leading you to do something that turns out to be like kind of rough or costly, in the aftermath of that, you can begin to wonder about Jesus. Like he's some hard master to follow. And you kind of get a little bit, hmm. It, it, it can affect your thinking about Jesus when that's like your narrative. But um, as I was exploring this question, 
I realized, I was looking back, and I was talking this over with my awesome Jewish therapist, uh, and at no point, I realized, did I feel a command from Jesus to do anything about, in this case, it was the LGBT inclusion question. At no point did I feel like, do this kind of a direction. I, I realized, actually, I never felt pressure from Jesus to change my mind. Instead, what I actually experienced is freedom from Jesus to do what I already believed was right and that I wanted to do, even though it was like crosswise to my religious crowd. It was like it was something he let me do and, and because I wanted to do it. See, there's, there's way more room in God than we think for us to exercise our agency. When I was like 20 years old, I, I was a brand new Jesus freak in the Jesus movement, and I had the long hair and the beads and the, you know, the blue jean jacket with Jesus is alive stitched on the back. And, but it was 1970, 1971. It was counterculture. It was cool. It wasn't a bunch of Southern, white Southern Baptists singing contemporary worship songs. And I don't want to go into that. <laughs> it, it, it was a totally different cultural moment than it is now. So I was a, I was a Jesus freak. I was reading the Gospels. I was discovering Jesus as if for the first time. I wasn't into that institutional churchianity stuff, but I was into Jesus. But then I thought, you know, I guess you're supposed to be part of a church when you're into Jesus. So Nancy and I went off to a, went off to a, a church nearby. We were at a marriage student housing on North Campus at the time. We went to like a nearby church. And it turns out this church had a particular view of predestination. Like, does God know everything in advance? Does he make everything happen? How does all that work? I went to the pastor. We sat down. We were very conscientious. How do you join this church? We, we think maybe we should join this church. He hands us two documents that were like the doctrinal foundation of the church. And one of them was called the Canons of Dort. Canons just mean like the rules or the guide of Dort. I think it's in Holland probably. Dort was a thing. They came together and came. And one of the things they taught in the Canons of Dort, I read both of the documents. One of the things I read was that God created some people to be saved to glorify him and he created other people to be damned to glorify him. It was, if anything, it was more strongly worded than that. I'm reading this, you know. And I'm like, oh, this is the hoop I have to go through to join this church. I was 20. I was a little bit uppity. I took those two documents back to the pastor the next week. I said, I read these, I read your documents. <laughs> I said, you know, you know way more about this stuff. And I saw a lot of Bible texts in there. And it may be true. It may be what the Bible teaches. And what did I know at age 20? But if it is, it's not something we're allowed to say. And it's not something I have any intention of ever believing. It was like an act of agency on my part. And actually, I think that was a great experience because I kind of realized, you know, even with matters of faith and all that, 
I think God recognizes a conscientious objector status. Like if you conscientiously object to something that you're reading or you see or you hear, this is the truth, like, like that's, it, God is someone who couldn't handle a conscientious objector. Our country, we're, we're doing, this is Veterans Day, right? 10 million people killed in World War One. You know, my father was my, you know, injured in World War Two. His father was gassed in World War One. Came back a changed person, in a wartime thing. Like it's a really big deal to to join up and to serve your country. But we've always recognized who conscientious objectors. They're every bit as much patriotic and citizen as anyone else is. And if our nation can do that, I think God can pull that up because he respects our agency. So I think I got off into a bit of a tangent there, um, but we're going to have a little quiet reflection now. So we usually take about two or three minutes. I think this time we'll make it a bit of a guided meditation. So um, you can just relax, find yourself a comfortable position, maybe take a couple of deep breaths just to center down. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that or not. And I'm wanting, what I'm going to invite you to do is to, this is like a classic practice in the Christian tradition called Lectio Divina, divine reading. And it simply means taking a text of scripture and placing yourself in the scene, like uh, picturing yourself as one of the uh, characters in the story and picturing yourself in the scene and kind of letting it unfold. So what I'm going to suggest is that you choose to be Bartimaeus, um, but not to focus so much on the blind, the healing part, but focus more on the agency part of the interaction, which is so important. In, uh, in Mark chapter, chapter 10. So you might want to just close your eyes and just picture yourself as Bartimaeus, um, the sense of commotion all around you that you can hear but you can't see necessarily. You're sitting by the side of the road. You know Jesus is coming by. And then it's clear, oh my gosh, you've got something to tell Jesus. You, you really desperately want to interact with him. So maybe just take a 30 seconds or so and say, in your case right now, right here, right now, what might that be that you'd want to talk over with him or even just tell him? Okay, so in the midst of all that commotion, Jesus stops and suddenly you're the person he's focused on in the midst of that big crowd. And you're, so just picture yourself being ushered into his presence. He's standing up, you're standing up. This is you interacting now with this holy man. All of his attention is fixed on you. And so, like, the noise and the perspective of the crowd just kind of dims. It's still happening. It's still there. But it's not significant to you anymore. And just take maybe 30 seconds to 
Imagine yourself standing before him, saying whatever it is you want to say, raising whatever question or concern or issue you want to raise. And now you just, you just realize that, oh, there's, there's complete space in the presence of Jesus for you as you are with the thoughts and the opinions and the perspectives that you have. And his main focus is just hearing that and knowing that and understanding that. He's not questioning. He's not challenging. He's just listening and hearing you. And maybe just to close this as you, in, in some way that signifies acceptance to you, picture Jesus signaling that kind of just like total acceptance of you. Maybe he embraces you, maybe he puts a hand on your shoulder, maybe he says something. Just let that unfold as we close. Okay, and just gently open your eyes and here we are at Blue Ocean.